right, in the first eight sessions that we have shared together in this series, Defending Your Faith, which has been a long time in coming, at least for the material on Christian science tonight, we have been looking at a number of key areas in this matter of defending our faith. You remember that in the first eight sessions that we have had together, we talked about our offensive weapons. That is what we believe as Christians. You remember that during the first eight times that we had together, we looked, for instance, at the doctrine of the Bible. We looked at what is commonly called bibliology, the study of the Bible. We looked at the doctrine of revelation. We looked at the doctrine of inspiration. We looked also in those eight sessions at the person of God. We studied also the person of Christ, the deity of Christ. We looked also at the deity of the Holy Spirit. And then we studied the doctrine of salvation, both in the sense of justification, as we looked at it in one of our messages, and then also the doctrine of sanctification. And all the while, as we studied in those first eight sessions together, we were reminding ourselves of all of the things that we must know in order to arm ourselves with the offensive weapons of our warfare. You do realize, don't you, that we must know something. There must be content to our faith. No one is a true Christian unless he knows something about what Christianity is. No person can say that they know Jesus Christ without knowing the doctrine of Christ, without knowing what the Bible teaches regarding the person of Christ. And because we're in a battle, because we are waging war against the forces of darkness, we need to always and forever be arming ourselves with what it is to know the truths of Scripture so that we can take the initiative out into our world. I was just thinking as Jim was speaking about the opportunity to go into over 170 countries. Well, if you were to go into those countries, what would you tell them? If you were a missionary, if you were a traveler, if you were on a plane and you were going to a foreign country to do business and you were sitting across from someone or you talked with someone in the airport or in the hotel lobby, Uh, If uh, someone was coming to serve you a meal, what would you tell them about the truths of Christianity? You see, it's so important to take an offensive approach. You remember I shared with you the passage in this regard that speaks of our need to do this. We're not going to turn there tonight, but let me just remind you of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. It says, in essence, we are destroying speculations, thoughts, And every lofty thing, every lofty thought, every lofty speculation that is raised up against the knowledge of God, or as I like to translate it, that is raised up against what is true about God. And Paul says that because of that, we're not using carnal weapons, we're not using the weapons of the world, we're using spiritually discernible weapons. That is the Word of God and prayer And we use the opportunity to fill our minds with the truth of the Word of God so that when those lofty speculations come against us, or as we offensively move into the arena of the world, we can, as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 10, take captive 
every one of these thoughts to the obedience of Jesus Christ. You see, that's our offensive idea. That's what we need to do. As I said to you in our very first lesson together, I'm not saying by that that we need to be offensive. We need to be offensive. Sometimes uh, we might not always differentiate between those two terms, but we can be Christians who rather than being offensive can rather take the offensive and show ourselves to be those worthy vessels fit for the Master's use because we understand and know Christianity to such a credible degree that people can respond to the Gospel message as a result of what we do to take that Gospel and initiate that Gospel in their hearing. Now that was our offensive side. That's what we were doing in those first eight messages. But you know that we then turned a corner, didn't we? In our ninth message together, we began what we might call a more defensive approach. Looking at how we might defend ourselves against the attacks of others who would come up against us. In this way, it would be likened to our not doing anything or saying anything or as someone might say, minding our own business and someone initiates their religious practice into our lives. This might be uh, by way of our sitting in our own home and someone knocks on the door and they introduce themselves and they say, I'm a part of a religious community. Let me tell you what we believe. And as you know, some of these groups are very aggressive. Some of, some of them come out at, at us in very aggressive ways. And they not only knock on our door, but they live next to us and they work with us. And they shop where we shop. And they go where we go. And they are often very bold in what they believe. And so there are times, beloved, that we need to respond, not necessarily always in the offensive, but sometimes when we are attacked and we become defensive, we need to arm ourselves, have in our minds what Peter spoke about in 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is our defensive posture. We're giving an answer when we're asked. We're defending what we believe when we are attacked. Now, with regard to this particular second approach that we've had in our series, we've looked already at a couple of groups that have been very aggressive in our world, and we have learned much about them. The first one, do you remember, was the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we spent an entire time talking about them, talking about both their origins and their beliefs, and then how we would defend ourselves against what they say. And you remember we had a fun format, I think, in doing that. Now what I did was I opened it up to you as well, and I said, here first are the origins of that group, and then we talked about what they believed, and I gave you some quotes out of their own writings. And then we had a dialogue format where you were giving me some passages in which you would use in order to defend your faith against them. You remember we also talked about the Mormons. We talked about what they believed. You remember we even watched a film on Mormonism called The Mormon Puzzle because it shows out of their own mouths what they believe and how aggressive they really are and how we must defend our faith with regard to that cult. Those two, by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, now the Mormons outstripping the Jehovah's Witnesses as the two largest cults in the United States 
and now moving even beyond the United States itself. And as I told you, the Mormon cult, Mormonism, uh, known also as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is now larger outside the United States than inside. And it's something that we must look at. It's something that we must arm ourselves because Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they live around us. They work where we work. They shop where we shop. They're around us all the time. And if someone were to pick up a Gideon Bible, as Jim mentioned earlier, and if they were to read in that Bible and by the living and abiding Word come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, what would we want to do to disciple them, to know what the Scripture teaches, to be able to form the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of hell? What would we do? We'd want to disciple them. And that's what we're doing in our series, Defending Your Faith. And tonight I want to talk about Christian science. Christian science. And once again, our outline is going to be very, very simple. We're going to talk about the origins of Christian science, and then we're going to talk about the biblical characteristics of Christian science, and then how we might arm ourselves to defend our faith against this cult. And I'm going to ask for the same thing tonight as we've done the previous two times. I'm going to ask you to give me some of the passages that you might use to defend yourself against them. All right, let me first give you some of the origins of Christian science. How many of you have actually heard of this cult? You've actually been aware of them? Good. As I was walking in tonight, I was talking with Pastor Ray Lippig, and he was telling me about someone that he worked very, very closely with at uh, Boeing, the uh, aerospace giant. And he was telling me that one of the men that he worked very, very close with was a Christian scientist. And so it's very applicable to every one of us. In fact, for some of us, it hits very, very close to home. What is the origin of Christian science? Well, let me tell you about it. I'm indebted, of course, to many works that I read and try to uh, understand through books that have been written and tapes that have been given and all kinds of things like that. And one of those very helpful resources is the revised edition of Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults. And Hank Hanegraaff, who is now the president of the uh, Christian Research Institute, CRI, has been very helpful in amassing a revised edition of that book 30 years after it's been published. And that book, having been revised in 1997, is a goldmine of information. I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, in fact, it even has a CD-ROM attached to it in which you can read it on your computer and uh, you can uh, manipulate some of the uh, uh, pages within that book to be able to maybe print out some things and have your own study time to be able to defend your faith against a lot of these cults. And uh, with regard to the origins of Christian science, one of the things that this book says is that Christian science itself is headquartered on a 14-acre complex of the First Church of Christ scientist in the back bay section of Boston, Massachusetts. That's its origin. That's where it began. And according to their official Internet homepage, the group has 2,300 branch churches in over 60 countries throughout the world. It goes on to say that Approximately 1,600 of these branch churches are in the United States and about 60 are in Canada. And while the church's bylaws forbid releasing statistics about their membership, 
Those who would be crucial observers outside those movements estimate that the total number of followers uh, are around 150,000 Christian scientists. They are governed by a five-member board of directors, and they're presently governed by a man by the name of J. Thomas Black, who resides in Birmingham, Michigan. It's run by Black and his board of trustees through the Boston First Church of Christ Scientists, which is really uh, the church that they would call their mother church, their founding church. But you know Christian science well beyond J. Thomas Black. You know Christian science from the original founder, a woman by the name of Mary Baker Eddy. She was the person who was responsible for the earliest movements of this cult called Christian science. Uh, You probably know her most famous writing. It's called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. And that is a book that they overlay with the Bible to produce all of the theology of Christian science. Now, Christian science as a term is really something that defines what they believe about the Christian mind. For decades, Christian science was the matriarch of a larger group of theories and theologies called the mind science family. You may be aware not only of Christian science, but a number of other groups that have taken the the mind of a person and exalted it uh, to a superior position, and they've spawned other groups. Uh, There are, for instance, uh, groups known as the uh, Unity School of Christianity, Mind Science, Religious Science, Divine Science, and a bunch of other siblings that go along with the idea, all of them really coming out of the same school of thought, that the mind, the mind of a Christian, the mind of a person, is to be so exalted that that mind can do amazing things, especially with regard to the matter of healing. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. I should say that while Christian science had its origins in the late 1800s, for many, many years, it had a very, very slow beginning. And it really wasn't until a number of decades later, uh, although Mary Baker Eddy herself had a burgeoning movement when she was alive, as it went through a number of transitionary phases, it was not something that was really to be reckoned with by the whole of United States society. But after a time, the Christian science movement became became real big. In fact, if you know anything about Christian science, you know one of the newspapers of their movement which came out of it is now one of the most respected newspapers in all of the land. It's called the Christian Science Monitor. How many of you are aware of that particular newspaper? In many ways, it's still a part of the organization, but because it seems so secular now, because it... Uh, does reviews, it does news stories about political events and all kinds of other things. It seems to be lifted beyond Christian science, but it's still very much a part of that movement. And in the 70s, Christian science members and even the media began to be aware that Christian science itself had begun a decline. There were a number of scandals that rocked that mother church in Boston, especially in 1976, when there were those who began to do some investigation and found out that there was some financial and some moral and some spiritual corruption that happened among some of the top leaders. 
And in the early 1980s, the Christian science cult began to regroup and they began to gather their numbers again. And yet they still had much to work through and they began to splinter off. And some of these other groups began to form, but they still they still hung together. And by today, in the early 90s, while the church is experiencing some level of discontent within its ranks, uh, mainly based on some things like lawsuits that have been brought against them, financial difficulties, uh, Internet upheaval that has occurred as well. Still yet, it is a force to be reckoned with. There are many, many people who are very sympathetic to this cult. And you can understand that in so many ways because our culture has become so secularized that when you have a group that promotes the use of the mind and they believe the mind is so superior that the mind becomes a sort of a supra-spiritual. The mind becomes as a mental process the ability to create your own world, the ability to heal yourself. You can see in a secular culture how that would be very appealing to a lot of people. The idea of a transcendent God, uh, the idea of sin, the idea of hell, the idea of salvation by grace through faith is repugnant to Christian scientists because it transcends them out of their mind into realities that are beyond them. And therefore, Christian science wants to eviscerate Christianity. They want to take Christianity and remove the supernatural elements. They want to exalt the mind and the mind alone. It's very interesting, this cult. According to Forbes magazine, the Christian Science Monitor is very influential, and yet it has not made a profit since 1961, and it has losses in excess of $250 million. And yet they just keep pouring money into this because it's such a respected newspaper, and yet somebody's supplying the cash to keep that Christian Science Monitor going. Uh, you say, well, how do they obtain the cash? Well, in many ways, they obtain the cash, again, by donations. And in 1992, for example, more than $40 million was borrowed from the employee pension fund to keep the church solvent. Now you can understand why there may be a few lawsuits going on. Uh, Taking from the till of an employee pension fund is not a good thing to keep the so-called ministry afloat. The church itself, if we can call it that, has also recently been under investigation by the U.S. Postal Service for violation of their nonprofit mailing rates. But even though the cult called Christian Science has uh, fallen on hard times in many ways, it's still very, very powerful. And it's something in which evangelical Christians must, must deal with. You might have seen as you pass by places, when I was in Los Angeles living there, it was almost on every street corner that I would go by, I would see a Christian science reading room. Have you ever seen those? Where you go in, you sit down, and they avail themselves of the mind by asking their members to read a great deal of material. And I guess in that way, it's profitable at least in terms of their encouragement of their people to be readers. I guess in some ways, maybe Christianity, true Christianity, is lagged behind because so often Christians aren't known as voracious readers. We ought to be the ones studying. We ought to be the ones who have true Christian reading rooms. 
Let me tell you a little bit about Mary Baker and then we'll go into their teachings. Mary Baker, who was she? Well, even by their own standards, even by their own literature, they call Mary Baker their mother, their leader, the discoverer and the founder of Christian science. She was born in 1821 in Bow, New Hampshire. She had some very humble surroundings. She was reared in a farmhouse. She was parented by strict congregationalists, Mark and Abigail Baker. And apparently in her young life, Mary Baker, until her 22nd year, was marked with very frequent illnesses, both of uh, an emotional and physical nature. And by December of 1843, at the age of 22, she was married to a man by the name of George W. Glover, who was a neighboring businessman in the area in which she lived. But a little while later, he died some seven months later. And because of that widowing, it uh, began a process of even more depression for Mary Baker. And in fact, she began to have a lot of use, at least in her own mind, uh, for drugs especially morphine. In fact, her biographer, Robert Peel, noted, quote, in order to lessen the pain of the move, of the doctor gave her one-eighth of a grain of morphine. She was having problems moving. She was having problems with her body. Additional documentation of her morphine use increased during the last years of her life. And in the words of James Didymore and Calvin Fry, uh, an, an unwritten uh, excuse me, an unpublished, handwritten uh, material of Eddie's own choosing, Eddie's own writing, Mary Baker Eddie. Uh, she even spoke of some of these things and spoke of the drugs and uh, some of the uh, material that she was ingesting in her body. And uh, because of some of these things and because of her tremendous desire to have another relationship, she married again. She married another man by the name of Daniel Patterson, Dr. Daniel Patterson, a dentist, and who, contrary to the advice of Mary's own father, married this man, and it was a disaster. And for some years, she was incredibly discouraged and depressed. And so she divorced, divorced Dr. Patterson whom she claimed had abandoned her, and thus her second marriage ended with crushing disaster. And then Mary Baker decided to marry again, and so she married Asa Edding, where, of course, she received the name Mary Baker Eddy. So if I guess we were sure about all of her names, it would have been Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. And obviously there were issues in her life in fact, uh, much of the material about her that's really been truly written, it's been researched, of course, would be something that Christian science itself would want to deny, but it's, there's no denying it. There's far too much accuracy with regard to all of the things that she was involved with. And at one point in her life, Mary Baker Eddy, as she became known, accused some of her former students of mentally poisoning her husband, Asa Eddy, with 
malicious mesmerism in the form of arsenic. And she began the study of what she believed could be the combination of science and religion. And Christian science was born, at least in her mind. In fact, she met a man who really is probably the person who we think is the real founder of Christian science. And his name was P.P. Quimby of Portland, Maine. And history tells us that even though Eddie was the mother of Christian science, Phineas Parkhurst Quimby was undoubtedly the father of the movement. Dr. quote-unquote Quimby in the late 1850s spoke about his own view of what he called mental healing, the science of man. And he used terms like this, the science of Christ, Christian science, and even used those terms for some time before Eddie sort of grabbed some of the terminology and made it her own. In fact, there's major controversy within Christian science where they're trying to prove that she's the real founder, and yet so many people have been able to prove chronologically that P.P. Quimby was really the one who came up with the essence, not only of the terminology, but of the religion itself, and how Mary Baker Eddy was really plagiarizing much of his own writings and much of his own theories. You can tell that there are some serious character flaws in both the life and in the thinking of Mary Baker Eddy. According to an authorized statement published by the Christian Science Publishing Society of Boston, Eddy, believing herself to have had a fall on a slippery sidewalk on February 1st, 1866, was pronounced incurable. In fact, she would say that she died and that she was brought back to life. Now, the third day, the attending physician, Dr. Alvin Cushing, allegedly uh, brought her to the place where she cried out for a Bible. She was given that Bible, and in the Bible she read Matthew 9-2 and rose completely healed. And thus she began, in her own words and testimony, to have discovered Christian science. In other words, I could read Matthew 9-2 but I could also see myself as rising above my illness and being able to see Christian science born. The ability to integrate the science of the mind along with Christianity. Now, corroborating this new story, Mary Baker Eddy in her book Retrospection and Introspection declared that in February of 1886, one month after P.P. Quimby's death, she was mortally injured in this sidewalk fall and was not, not expected to live. She, however, vanquished the angel of death in this skirmish and on the third day emerged triumphant over her bodily infirmity. This is the story that's maintained by our organization. In fact, if you were to go on the Internet website of Christian Science, you would read this. In 1866, Mary Baker Eddy was severely injured in a fall and turned to the Bible as she had been accustomed to doing. All she had pondered in the past came strongly and clearly to her as she read an account of one of Jesus' healings. She was immediately healed. Convinced that God had healed her, she spent the next several years searching the Scriptures to understand the principle behind her healing. She named her discovery Christian Science and explained it in 1875 when she first wrote Science and Health with Key to the Scripture.
you, you would be amazed as I am when I walk into bookstores and major bookstores, not just out of the way bookstores, but Barnes and Noble and B. Dalton books, a number of others, that science and health with, with key to the scriptures is still a very hot seller. And yet it's incredible what you read in there. And that's what I want to do now. I want to turn to some of the very teachings of Christian science. And I want to give you just a few things about what they teach in a number of important areas. And then I'm going to turn the table and act as though Christian science is knocking on your door. And then I want you to tell me how you would defend yourself against some of those very teachings. All right. Let's look, first of all, as we evaluate the the biblical so-called teaching of Christian science. Let's talk, first of all, about the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Here's what Christian science believes. And again, as I've done both with the Jehovah's Witnesses and with the Mormons, I have to to tell you as I read these things, I'm not making this up. This is what they really teach. This is what they really believe. First of all, referring to Genesis 2-7, which of course, maybe you could turn in your Bibles and look at that particular scripture so that it makes it understandable to you. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, with regard to Genesis 2.7, this is what Christian science says. Quote, this is Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, page 524. Is this addition to his creation, that is man, Genesis 2.7, This addition, that is not just the creation of the world itself, but the creation of man and woman. Is this addition to his creation real or unreal? Is it the truth or is it a lie concerning man and God? Mary Baker Eddy concludes regarding the creation of man as a material being, having matter, having flesh. She concludes it must be a lie. She goes on to say, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, page 139. The manifest mistakes in the ancient versions, that's the versions of the Bible, the 30,000 different readings in the Old Testament, and the 300,000 in the New, these facts show how a mortal and material sense stole into the divine record. In other words, it wasn't there to begin with with its own hue darkening, to some extent, the inspired pages. In other words, the Bible doesn't really teach that man is a material being. It doesn't really teach that there is matter in our universe, certainly not with regard to man. And so she says, those ideas stole their way into the pages of Scripture. It is not itself the Word of God. Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, page 126. The Bible has been my own authority, she says. I have no other guide in the straight and narrow way of truth. Well, if you're going to say, however, that there are certain verses that don't jive with what you believe, then the easiest thing to do then, if you say you believe in the authority of Scripture, is to jettison those passages and say, obviously someone put those in there, they must not be true. That's how she is able to go around the idea that the Bible is her sole source of authority. 
To the average Christian science, then, the Bible is a compilation of ancient writings, quote, full of hundreds of thousands of textual errors. Its divinity is uncertain. I'm quoting now. Its inspiration questionable. It is made up of metaphors, allegories, myths, and fables. It cannot be read and interpreted literally. End quote. Through science and health, she, Mary Baker Eddy, and they, Christian Science, affirm, quote, that there was a rediscovery of the healing principle of Jesus and His disciples lost since the early Christian era. To all Christian scientists then, since they swear allegiance to Mary Baker Eddy and her version of the Bible, which would be how she attacks the true Word of God, and then they lay allegiance completely and fully to science and health with key to the Scriptures, believing that also to be authoritative revelation from God. They swear allegiance to Eddie, quote, the material record of the Bible is no more important to our well-being than the history of Europe and America, end quote. It's really just a history book. If you really want to know the Bible, if you really want to know God, if you really want to know truth, if you want your mind expanded in the proper way, don't just study the Old and New Testaments because it's just like a history book of Europe and America. If you really want to know the truth, you must study science and health with key to the Scriptures. That's their view of the Bible. Now that person has just knocked on your door. That's what they begin to tell you about the inspiration and authority of the Bible. What do you say? Where do you go? 2 Timothy 3.16, which says what? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for correction. Maybe that's the last one. What does it say? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Alright, let's say that a descendant of Mary Baker Eddy herself is at your door, and they say, we believe that. We believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for those four things. But we also believe that in order for you to understand the Scripture, you must know and understand science and health with key to the Scriptures. What would you say? What's that? Say it again. Study your hermeneutics. Herman who? How would you arm yourself to talk with someone who believes in the Scripture, but believes the Scripture is made up of not only the Old and New Testaments, but also a book called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures? Or the Mormons who believe not only in the Bible, but also believe in doctrines and covenants, the pearl of great price, etc., etc.? Very good. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. What does it say? Very good. That passage is obviously saying that for a person to go outside God's revelation as contained in all of the books 
leading up to and including that book of the Bible, that's not a good thing. That, that would mean that all of the plagues that are contained in that book would be added to that person. Where else would you go? What else would you say? They've knocked on the door. They begin a dialogue with you about the authority of the Bible. What would you say with regard to uh, their teachings? Pastor Jeff? Very good. See, there's a passage, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, that not only talks about what something like 2 Timothy 3 is alluding to, but it also talks about the sufficiency of Scripture. It would allude to the fact that Scripture is sufficient in and of itself. There is no need for additional revelation. What might be another passage? What about Jude? What passage in Jude would speak of the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. What passage is that? Jude what? Jude what? Jude 3. And what might that be referring to? Might that also be referring to when the articular construction there, the faith, the article occurring before the word faith, it's not talking about a personal subjective faith that someone has in Jesus Christ, it's talking about the faith. It's talking about the revealed body of doctrine. It's talking about the Word of God. And it says there that the Word of God has been once for all delivered to the saints. There is nothing outside of that. That's a good verse to go to and ask them to explain how do you understand science and health with key to the Scripture in light of the fact that this verse is saying that there's nothing outside of the Word of God, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, the faith, the body of revealed truth, how do you say that there's truth even beyond that? How do you put what you believe on a par with what you already agree is the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And that's one of the things that you can talk to them about. And you can say, do you believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, the 39 of the Old and the 27 of the New, do you believe that that makes up what we commonly refer to when we say the Bible? And they would say yes. What they do, however, is they go beyond the 66 books of the Bible, and Jude 3 might be a good place to go. Where else? Matthew twenty two twenty nine. What does it say, Artie? Very good. Matthew twenty two. Doctor Z, how about Psalm one nineteen? Is there anything there that might give us insight? Psalm one nineteen is a a wonderful book because in almost every verse, if not every verse, it extols the virtues of the Word of God. Psalm 119, we read this, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Thy Word is very pure. Thy Word is true from the beginning. Yes. Verse 142, hooking it up with John 17. In John 17, 17, it says what? Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. 
In John chapter 10, verse 35, it says the Scripture cannot be what? Broken. In other words, what we have revealed to us in the body of the 66 books of our Bible is sufficient. And for someone to go outside of the corpus of that literature is to go beyond what God has given to us. All right, well, that's just a look at the inspiration and authority of the Bible as they see it. And of course, we could go through myriads of other quotes that they have and many other passages that we could bring to our minds. But let's go on to the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Here's what Christian scientists say. Quote, science and health with key to the scriptures, page 256. The theory of three persons in one God that is, a personal trinity or triunity suggests polytheism rather than the one ever-present I Am. That's what Mary Baker, Eddie Patterson, Grover Fry believes. Quote, Science and Health, page 361. The Christian who believes in the first commandment is a monotheist. Thus, he virtually unites with the Jews' belief in one God and recognizes that Jesus Christ is not God as Jesus Himself declared, but is the Son of God. Quote, her miscellaneous writings, page 84, the spiritual Christ was infallible. Jesus, as material manhood, was not Christ. End quote. What do you think about that? They walk into your sidewalk area, they knock on the door, you meet them outside, of course, and you say to them, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? What do you believe about His deity? Do you believe that Jesus is God? And if they're again true to what they believe and have been taught, they would say, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but not God Himself. He even declared that He wasn't God. What would you do? What would you say? Well, I know what the first thing I'd say is, where did he declare that he was not God? Whenever someone makes a declarative statement and you believe that somehow that statement is fallacious, what should you do always and forever? Say, prove it. Just like someone who says there are, there are, there are uh, errors in the Bible. What would you need to do? Tell me, where are they? Bring me an example. You see, if someone makes a declarative statement, what you need to do is put the burden of proof on them to tell you why they believe that. And often, frankly, beloved, what Christian science and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other cults do is that because they've been brainwashed, because they've been programmed to say these things, if you force them outside of the box to defend what they believe, if you force them by your questions to tell you what they believe by asking them good and excellent questions, often they haven't been programmed to respond rightly. Force them to prove what they believe from the Scripture. Alright, what else? What would you say if someone came up to you who was a Christian scientist and said, I believe that the spiritual Christ was infallible, but Jesus, as a, as a man, was not Christ. I believe there was a Christ, and I believe He was spiritual, and I believe He was infallible, but I don't believe in the man Jesus being the spiritual Christ. Dr. Fitzrandolph? 1 John 4. What would 1 John 4 help us in this regard? How would it help us in this regard? 
Excellent. First John would be a great place to go because first John speaks about Christ as having come in the flesh. It's mentioned a number of times in that first epistle of John. And what you can do is talk to Christian scientists about the idea that it is not true, according to Scripture, according to divine revelation, that man as material being is somehow either not in existence or if he is in existence, it's not a real existence. And if you go to 1 John, you can actually work with them, again, if the Spirit of God is willing and working in their hearts, to prove to them that 1 John not only says that Jesus did come in the flesh, but if you don't believe He came in the flesh, what does it say about you? What does it say if someone denies that Jesus has come in the flesh? It says that they're antichrist. That's right, Patty Lou. They are antichrist. They're against Christ. What other passages might be good in this regard? Mike? Excellent. Excellent, Mike Metters. Mike is saying in Colossians 2.9, great passage. It links up the two natures of Christ by saying that all the fullness of the Godhead or all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ and it explains it in bodily form. It's hard to move around a passage like that when it talks about the bodily form of Christ, the physical nature of Christ, and also at the same time affirming his transcendence as deity. Great passage. Artie? Very good. John 1 1 and John 1 14. And you can see as we've gone through some of these cults, almost at very similar places do they begin to err regarding, for instance, the person of Christ or the doctrine of salvation or some particular doctrine like that. Almost all of them begin to err at very crucial junctures with regard to the Bible, with regard to the person of God, the person of Christ, and the doctrine of salvation. Here are a couple of others and we'll move along. Philippians 2, 8-11. That's the passage which talks about Christ as having had the glory with the Father before the world was, he did not hold on or grasp onto his equality with God, but he emptied himself and he became a man. It talks about taking the form of a servant. And it uses the very words, morpho. It uses the exact language that proves, if we can say it this way, the fleshness of Christ. That he actually was flesh. That he actually was a human being, yet not tainted with sin. Alright, so Philippians 2 would be a good passage. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is another great passage. Revelation 1, 8. Revelation 1, 17 to 18 as well. A number of passages regarding those things. Here's one that you might not think of when you think of the person of God because as they deny the materiality of Christ, they also deny uh, the, uh, the real existence of God the Father. The, the, the exact existence of God the Father. Not materially, of course, because He doesn't have a body, but the, the concept of the person of God. In essence, they deny the person of God. 
They put him in some abstract form. And yet in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it is said about God, I am. And it uses the Hebrew verb form to be. Speaking of the idea that God is. And because He is, for someone to deny that He is, is to deny the very words of that text. That's a great passage to go to as well. Of course, the I am statements of Christ also, which speaks again of the reality of the person of Christ. It's not just some sort of uh, either non-material spiritual transcendence or it's not denying the reality of the, of the actual humanity of Christ. Alright, let's move along. Uh, maybe I'll skip the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but maybe let's go to the atonement of Christ and then we'll talk about salvation and then we'll end our time. The atonement of Christ. Quote, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, page 25. Listen to this. Find out if you believe that this is really a cult. The material blood of Jesus, this is Mary Baker, the material blood of Jesus was no more efficacious to cleanse from sin when it was shed upon the accursed tree than, it was, than when it was flowing in his veins as he went daily about his father's business. Unquote. It was no more efficacious to cleanse from sin than when it was just sloshing around in his veins when he was walking about on the earth. Quote, The real atonement, so infinitely beyond the heathen conception that God requires human blood to propitiate His justice and bring His mercy, needs to be understood. In other words, what we understand about real atonement needs to be re-understood in her mind because she denies it. They deny the real blood sacrifice of Christ. They deny an actual atonement. Alright, if that's the case, and maybe they might use real mystical language if they were to talk to you about this, but you're able to understand as they knock on your door that they're denying the true atonement of Christ, what would you say about that? What would you say about the need for a true, tangible blood atonement? What passages might you go to? Hebrews 9.14, which says, Very good. Hebrews 9.14. I'm thinking of one in the Old Testament that demands a blood sacrifice. What is it? Can you think of it? Leviticus 17. What? Leviticus 17.11. It says, It is the blood that makes an atonement or a covering for the soul. It is the blood that makes atonement. You know, there's a heresy that's floating around in the church that says Jesus didn't actually have to shed His blood. He could have died in any number of ways for an atonement to be made. That's not true. If for no other reason, it fulfills precise Old Testament prophecy that a blood sacrifice must have been made. Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission. What's that? Yeah, Hebrews 9.22. What other passages? Romans 3.25. Very, very good. How about John 1.29? What did John the Baptist say about seeing the person of Christ? What did he say about Him? 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That speaks of atonement. speaks of a covering. Very good. That's probably one of the best. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. How about 1 John 1, 7? The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Christ is absolutely necessary. Brad, Sweeney? Romans 5, 8 and 9. Very good. I hope you're writing these passages down because likely there will be someone in your life who will begin to question these things, whether they're a Christian scientist or not. All right, well, our time is just about gone. Maybe just one little area. The doctrine of eternal salvation. That's, that's fairly important, isn't it? Quote, Man as God's idea is already saved with an everlasting salvation. Miscellaneous Writings, page 261. Man's already saved with an everlasting salvation. Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, page 25. One sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin. And if you were just to read on your own some of these passages in this book, if you were to pick it up on your own and begin to read it, you would begin to find that there are a number of these statements that are egregious in their error. Obviously, that cannot be true. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the what? The gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. What is salvation? Salvation hasn't already been granted to all men, as that quote suggests. Salvation is by personal faith, repentance, trust in Jesus Christ. What does Acts 4.12 say? Someone quote Acts 4.12 for me. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Boy, those are, those are passages that must be in your heart, must be in your mind, so that when they come to you and they deny salvation by grace through faith, you must be able to respond to them. And as I said before, almost all those cults are error-prone at this very juncture. How important is it for us, not only for our own salvation, and not only for our own glorying of God in our salvation, but to be able to refute error that's sending people to an eternal hell. Christian science, it's very, very important to deal with. I would encourage you, as you have opportunity to share with Christian scientists, go to some of these key doctrinal areas. Don't be moved into tangents uh, about issues of physical healing. That's one of the things that would take you uh, in a rabbit trail that has no end. How could we possibly question somebody who says they've had a physical healing in their past? I mean, if they come to us and they appear to be natural and normal in whatever physical condition they come, and they say, I had a healing, just like Mary Baker Eddy said, I was either dead or almost dead, and I had a slip on a sidewalk, and then I was healed after reading the Bible and thinking through the healing process of Jesus. How could you refute that? 
How could you say that didn't happen? Well, it might take us a lot of time and effort to find out the facts of the matter, to go through all the processes of the issue of evidence. Uh, did this happen? Is there any corroboration? Are there any witnesses? But how much more important is it to go right to the key doctrinal truths of our faith, defend it in such a way, and then allow the Spirit of God to take what we say and penetrate the hardest human heart to bring them to a place of repentance and trust in Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this, this really, really foundational look tonight at one of these cults that vies for the attention of men and women in our world. And Father, I pray that those who are involved in such a, a hideous cult would be brought out of such a thing by the witness and the defense of our own faith. Lord, I pray that You would work mightily in the hearts of these men and women, so many of them ensnared by Satan in the destructive, lofty speculations, the, the hypocritical, lying speakers who walk around in our world. And people fall for these things. People are ensnared and trapped by them. And I pray that through the witness of our own lives and the defense of our own faith, becoming rooted and grounded in the great truths of Christianity, that we'd be able to talk with them and not only talk with them, but have a boldness and a confidence that we not only know what we believe, but we would even take the offensive and that we would go to the highways and byways that we would challenge people to submit to the true Christ and to respond to the true Gospel. Because then and only then does it truly bring You glory. May we respond to these things because it does honor You and because it makes us faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.